You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Tengyu Ma, who is an assistant professor of computer science and statistics at Stanford University. His research focuses on deep learning and its theory, as well as topics in machine learning such as robustness, representation learning, and non-convex optimization. Tengyu's PhD thesis is titled Non-Convex Optimization for Machine Learning, Design, Analysis, and Understanding, which he completed in 2017 at Princeton University. We discuss the theory of machine learning and deep learning, centered around his work in the thesis. We talk about the all-local minima are global minima property, which he explored in the thesis in the context of sparse coding and matrix completion, and connect it with questions that he thinks about today in deep learning. We talk about over-parameterization and why it helps with optimization, as well as the algorithmic, landscape, and trajectory perspectives that theory takes on understanding deep learning. Finally, we talk about theory and natural language processing, and throughout cover a lot of high-level questions, including when beating state-of-the-art matters. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. The Thesis Review runs on contributions from you, the listeners, so to keep the show up and running, please consider supporting the show. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Tengyu Ma with Non-Convex Optimization for Machine Learning, Design, Analysis, and Understanding on the Thesis Review. In your thesis, you look into more theoretical aspects of machine learning and non-convex optimization. What would kind of a full understanding of non-convex optimization or of deep learning look like? And is that something that uh, you kind of aim for? Yeah, so I guess uh, this is actually a a great question. And um, um, I can start with the somewhat high-level stuff. So at a high level, I think we want to understand non-convex optimization uh, in the sense that we want to say, you know, when the um, for what cases, uh, for what non-convex functions we can solve, and for what con- non-convex function we can solve to what kind of optimality. Right? So for some non-convex function, we probably can only find the best local minimum. Uh, so for some other non-convex functions, we can find a global minimum. We know that there's no way to have a universal result, like uh, you can solve any non-convex objective functions because it's going to be hard. So so we have to be kind of more fine-grained. And also the slightly kind of like um, more advanced question is how fast we can solve, right? So mm-hmm. for now, I think the 
kind of the type of uh, answers are that uh, you can solve this family of non-convex functions uh, with certain runtime, like depending on certain parameters of the non-convex functions. And in the long run, probably we want to be more fine-grained about uh, more detailed characterization of the non-convex functions. Currently, you just care about certain very simple properties like smoothness, you know, lipschitzness, so on and so forth. And in the long run, we can probably say for this architecture, for this deep learning architecture, the loss function is non-convex and we can solve um, in what time and we can design the fastest algorithm for them. So that's the um, the general goal for non-convex optimization. Um, but I think there is also some kind of like nuances, which we probably will discuss uh, in a bit. I would just have a kind of like a high level um, description of some of the nuances that could be make it subtle. For example, when you do non-convex optimization, you can also change uh, the architecture if you, you are in a machine learning setting, right? If you are just given the loss function, there's nothing you can do, right? I'm just going to solve this loss function. That's it, right? But if you are given a machine learning problem, you are learning some data set, you can change your architecture. You can change the, the parametrization, right? So then you change the loss function, but you are still solving the same machine learning problem. And then when you allow yourself to have these kind of flexibilities, then there's, there's going to be some subtlety. For example, what kind of changes for the parametrization is allowed and what kind of changes is not allowed and whether you have sample complexity issues. Mm, I see. So really to have a full understanding, you'd have to say like for any given parameterization, for any given data, this is going to happen according to our theory. Um, yes, for completely full understanding, yes, that's right. But I think we are actually, we are in the, in some sense, the reverse kind of mindset. We are not trying to like, um, I think in the last five to 10 years, I think the, um, the kind of the mindset is that you are not looking for universality. We are not looking for uh, a method that is completely, um, um, like that is, um, like you are not looking for a comprehensive answer because that's too, uh, ambitious uh, in the near future. So in, actually what we are doing is that we um, are in the reverse mindset. We try to find special cases which we can solve. And we want these special cases to cover to some extent the realistic situations. And um, so then we can make some progress. So, so the hardest part is to make some progress. The hardest part is not, to, is not yet to have a comprehensive answer to this question. Yeah, it just gives you a sense of like, how hard the problem is, because then even focusing on these special cases is obviously uh, very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe let's go back to um, kind of what led up to you doing this PhD work and then becoming a professor and focusing on these theoretical areas. Kind of what was your background in, say, undergrad? And how did you start to get interested in these areas that you would eventually focus on? So I guess my uh, in my undergrad, I mostly studied uh, theoretical computer science and generally computer science. I guess, to be honest, back in 20, 2008 to 2012 in Tsinghua University, where I graduated from uh, as an undergrad, um, there were no, um, not many machine learning courses. There are, there's probably one machine learning course, uh, maybe one data mining course, and that's, that's pretty much, that's it. So like at least in the department I was in. So, um, so I didn't know even machine learning much uh, in my undergrad. And then when I came to PhD, um, I started um, to work with Sanjeev. At the beginning, I wanted to work with Sanjeev Aurora uh, on, um, on approximation algorithms um, because uh, Professor Sanjeev Aurora, he was um, um, mostly working on approximation algorithms and the complexity theory in the 
in the past 20 years. And at that point, Sanjeev started to switch to machine learning. He started to think that machine learning is a good opportunity uh, to, to for um, better, more realistic algorithm design. I think the, the philosophy at that point is that um, there are so many intractable problems, I guess we have learned from um, like uh, the TCS courses, like, you know, MaxCut, you know, TSP, all of these questions are NP hard, right? But in re reality, there are so many uh, different, so, so many of these questions, exactly the same question even, right? Can be solved with some heuristics, with some um, um, just hacks. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it's now clear why uh, we can do that. And the theory cannot capture some of uh, the, the, the amazing performance of these heuristics. And machine learning, uh, algorithms is also one of those, right? For example, when you optimize the deep learning objective functions, it's a heuristic in some sense in the in the in the classical theoretical computer science um, uh, sense because um, um, it's a heuristic because you cannot solve these questions, you know, in polynomial time for the worst case settings, right? You can, you cannot it cannot work for all the possible data sets, all the possible ground truth parameters, so on and so forth, because that that would be NP hard. So mm -hmm. so the general philosophy at that point was that. We want to go beyond worst case uh, thinking, right? So if you think about worst case questions um, within a family, then it's NP hard. But if you uh, work with average case problems, average case, you know, that's a EO defined term, but in some sense, it's just not worst case, right? So like basically if you work on realistic and simpler subfamily of questions, then you may be able to make progress. And machine learning is a good uh, topic to, um, a good area to instantiate this kind of like philosophical, philosophical kind of ideas because uh, for machine learning, you can talk about subcases, right? Just uh, because you can make assumptions on the data, you can make sometimes generative assumptions on the data, you can make assumptions on the ground truth uh, models, so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. um, um, I think I, I found that extremely exciting. Um, and uh, so that's why I started to work with Sanjeev <laughs> on machine learning theory. Uh, and then um, I gradually becomes more and more kind of like machine learning than um, uh, theoretical computer science, I guess. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So then when you were applying to the PhD, you didn't even have machine learning necessarily in mind. Yeah, I think I barely know the, I barely knew the term machine learning. I think I probably took one class about data mining uh, mm -hmm. in undergrad. But data mining is not exactly machine learning. There are some similarities, but not exactly the same. So that's pretty much all I knew before I came to PhD. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you find that like when you were starting to work on the kind of average case or on the machine learning, that it was a shift in the type of thinking required? You know, like if you're always worried about like just worst case, these very like exact type things, was it kind of a shift in the like methods you were using or even like the type of thinking? Yeah, I think there is a big shift in my opinion, right? So, um, so when we do algorithms, right? So sometimes you have to understand why is this is difficult. You have to think more about, um, like, like because you know, especially when people design algorithms, like like approximation algorithms, you are basically walking along the boundary between possible and impossible, right? Uh, you you basically have to think about you know whether this is impossible whether your goal is impossible and then you switch if you don't find a you don't find a way to prove that it's impossible then maybe that means it's possible so then you try to design algorithms and if you don't find a way to design algorithms you are you switch back to think okay maybe this is impossible so that's kind of the type of thinking for uh, the, the somewhat kind of the classical 
approximation theory, approximation algorithm design. So uh, for machine learning, I guess you have a lot more flexibility, right? So if you make an, enough assumptions on your problem, you always make it possible, right? You can always have an answer. And then, so the question is not about impossible versus possible, it's more about whether your assumptions make sense and also whether your assumptions capture certain degree of realisticness. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, uh, um, I think that's a big shift. And also I think when you do machine learning theory, I think at least for me, I tend to think more about um, the 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 upper bound, the 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 the, possible, the, the algorithm design um, thing, because you know if you think about um, impossibility results, it, it's just sometimes so easy. So you mm -hmm. can always find out some ways to mess up your uh, setup to make it uh, super difficult. So so when I you know work with my students, I always said that you know you can be you can feel like you can somehow feel brave or kind of like ignorant about impossibility results, right? Just uh, forget about anything impossible. Just try uh, some ideas and see what can make it work. And sometimes, you know, what happens is that we got um, something that can work, but it's just not, doesn't make sense. For example, you make too strong of assumption and then you start to think about, okay, how can I make the assumption weaker? How can I extend my analysis? But all of this is within the realm of, designing algorithms and analysis, but not like uh, thinking about the lower bound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. One other thing, uh, just on your general background before we go into thesis. Uh, so we just had Donchi Chen on the podcast and she had mentioned um, that she was in this Yao special class at Tsinghua. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw in your, um, I do read the acknowledgement section as well. And I saw that you had mentioned that, uh, that class as well. So it seems like a really effective program. Do you have any takeaways about like what made that such an effective program or just like good memories from it? Yeah, I think I had a lot of good memories from it. Um, I think there are multiple uh, factors, I guess, right? One of the factors is uh, that, you know, the, the class that select uh, the best students, you know, within Tsinghua probably. So, and also, you know, Tsinghua is the top university. Uh, in China, so 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 we do get the best students as well, um, mm. but of course beyond that, there's also a lot of factors about the the particular way that um, um, about education format that uh, Professor Yao set up. So so I think for example, one thing is that um, at least when in 20, 2008, right when I, when I entered uh, Tsinghua University Yao class, I found the curriculum in Yao class is pretty advanced. Like uh, mm. at that point, there are um, some of these advanced classes that you cannot um, um, take uh, at other places. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I think in general, um, the Yao class has this very good atmosphere about doing research. So there are many uh, research opportunities. I think they actually found students to go to America to uh, intern for one quarter or one semester with uh, professors and also went for another summer. So basically every student seems to have like six months of experiences working only on research uh, with professors in US. And that helps those students to get up to speed for research a lot. And and, and this is actually in some sense um, purely research because they don't have to take many classes, maybe one classes um, for one culture or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. So they can focus on research. Of course, there's a trade-off, right? Because then you have to take more classes in other semesters. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah. And another thing I, I, I found quite interesting about your class is that people tend to be very independent. So 
uh, when I was a student, you know, I, um, you know, like there are a lot of kind of like student, you know, discussions between students and uh, when people, when students work with professors as as well, like I, I guess they also tend to be somewhat independent, right? So they try to kind of figure out things, you know, uh, themselves. For example, sometimes I, you know, like I, I don't know some techniques, you know, I ask around my friends and, uh, and sometimes discuss with my friends. Um, of course, you know, the professors are very helpful as well, but I think this kind of mindset of doing things yourself uh, as much as possible, I think that kind of help generate the research, right? So like, I guess um, I can see that um, in US, you know, sometimes, you know, some of the, you know, of course, this doesn't apply to everything, right? But I, I, I can feel that sometimes the, uh, the instructors, you know, the the help the students a lot, which is often a great thing. But sometimes the students probably don't necessarily like uh, try their best, you know. Like of course, in, this happens in Tsinghua as well. Like I'm not saying what, what, but I think the in general, I feel like the independence is one thing that um that was beneficial to the Yao class students. Yeah, I could definitely see that, and it kind of models the situation that you run into in research where. You're working on a problem, maybe even by yourself, and you get stuck. And yeah, yeah, it could be tough as well, right? So it's not like a it may not necessarily apply to everyone, but these are students that are selected as well. Yeah. So, so it's in some sense, it's a it's a good fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe let's start going through talking through what you did during the PhD, and then also just like going back and forth between how it connects with things that you're currently thinking about, uh, and so on. So the, the title is Non-Convex Optimization for Machine Learning, Design, Analysis, and Understanding. Uh, and there's kind of three different sections. And the first one, it's called Local Improvement Algorithms, Starting from Course Solutions. So since it's the first section, could you maybe just give like a, a backdrop of where machine learning was at, where theory was at, and kind of how you started to settle on this problem of starting with like some course initialization? Yeah, so I think th- this is a, actually a great question because um, I tend to think that that particular section of the or chapter of the thesis is mostly out of date in 2021, uh, which is actually a good thing because th- that means the field is progressing very, very fast. So, um, but then there's a historical reason for we do this because um, at the time when I started my PhD, I started to work on this non-convex optimization questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have we didn't we had basically no tools in some sense, mm-hmm. and uh, and this non-convex landscape is so complicated, and we don't know how to analyze it uh, from a random initialization. So so basically, um, at that point around 2015, 2014, so um, including my papers and some of the other papers, like the 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 community was trying to. Um, starting an easier question. The easier question is that you start to use some other methods, for example, some convex optimization methods or some so-called convex relaxation methods um, to get some coarse solution, some solution that is not perfect, but you know reasonably okay. And then you start to use non-convex optimization to converge to the exact uh, best, uh, the optimal solution uh, you wanted to have, mm-hmm. right? So it turns out that this kind of methods, you know, um, they uh, would give a imp- this co- hybrid approach would give an improvement uh, in terms of the sample complexity and sometimes in terms of the uh, polynomial, uh, like in terms of the runtime as well, compared to the purely convex based approach. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, so that's the starting point. So you, um, you, you focus on an easier question because now you only have to analyze non-convex optimization for a certain phase, right? Not for the entire, like, uh, um, the entire, um, phase of the algorithm, but you only look at the the fine fine tuned phase in some sense. Um, and but these days, I think we stop doing uh, this kind of analysis, partly because. Uh, a this kind of hybrid approach has been well studied, right? So when you can do this hybrid approach, basically we have kind of like nailed down everything, you know, not exactly everything, but like a, approximately everything, um, um, uh, for for these kind of situations. And then the challenge becomes that for some, for many of the other questions, for example, deep learning questions, mm -hmm. there's no way to find any coarse solution using convex optimization methods. Mm. So you really just have to start with random initialization because there's nothing else you can do except non-convex optimization. So, um, so that's why um, we shift our kind of focus towards um, random initialization or more generic initialization these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so here you're studying uh, things like sparse coding, topic models, and matrix completion. So not deep learning uh, yet at this stage. Right, right, not deep learning yet at this stage. Um, and I think for the entire thesis, I think there's only one or two chapters about deep learning. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if you think about the kind of like a, um, the last five years after I wrote the thesis, I think the thesis was written in 2017, that's four years ago, but actually most of the works probably are done before 2016, so it's kind of like five years ago. So in the last five years, you know, um, people started to work on deep learning. I guess, you know, the intention for me to write this thesis was to study deep learning. Um, but, you know, at that point, you know, I think one of the very important advice um, that I got from people, including Sanjeev and some other senior people, is that, you know, if you don't understand deep learning, non optimization for deep learning, you should start with non optimization for some simpler questions, mm -hmm. right? So so that's why we started with simpler questions, not only me, but also some of the other um, people pioneering this um, area started with simpler questions than deep learning. And then I think basically after 2017, um, people started to move on to deep learning. And when people move on to deep learning, it's also a gradual thing, right? So at the beginning, we work on linearized um, uh, models. Linearized models means that it's deep, but there's no non-linearity in it. So it's kind of like something in between uh, linear models and, and deep models. Um, and, and now people gradually try to work on um, more layers, you know, more non-linearity, so on and so forth. Do you think that, like, even though you might not do this exact analysis in 2021, that the kind of experience of doing the research in this area did somehow carry through? For example, like, you developed this thing with the Lyanopov functions. Yeah. Did that maybe like somehow influence later ideas that you had later in your research or? So you mean whether the thesis, you know, the, whether the research uh, in the thesis influenced the later ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, um, yes, uh, definitely. So I think, um, I think one particular case is this matrix completion paper. So in this matrix completion paper, I guess, I guess, you know, just to, um, to set up the um, kind of the context. So the, the matrix completion paper by itself also has other motivations because, you know, people are using this non-convex optimization algorithms uh, for matrix completion. Maybe I can expand that later, but, the, you know, on a technical level, so that paper proposed this, um, analysis technique 
or this analysis framework. Um, and no, not only that paper proposed it, but also some of the other um, papers around the same time also proposed similar uh, kind of like framework techniques. And this technique, you know, is in one sentence called all local minima are global. So basically you want to prove that all the local minima are global for the non-convex function you are looking at. And then if this happens, then you can converge to a global minimum because you know it's not that hard to converge to a local minimum. And if all the local minimum are global minima, then you can converge to a global minimum. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, this is a, a characterization for the loss function. And if you can characterize the loss function with this property, then you solve the question to, to uh, up to the first order um, approximation. Like uh, you still don't know exactly how fast you can converge, but yet at least you know in polynomial time, you will converge to a global minimum if mm -hmm. you have this property. Right. And and in that matrix completion paper or the, that section of the thesis, so uh, we also de developed some tools for characterizing um, the landscape uh, of uh, of this loss function. So uh, and and try to prove these properties right for this property for the loss function, uh, and I think those techniques, uh, I think some of them are pretty useful for doing uh, new networks as well because in some sense, matrix completion can be viewed as um, a variant of two-layer network um, without linear, without activations, without nonlinear activations. So if you have a two-layer network with linear layers in between, linear activations in between, then uh, that's you know, not exactly matrix completion, but quite similar. So some of the tools carry over, actually many of the tools carry over to that cases. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I guess that's kind of the technical connection between the pre-deep learning work versus the and the, and, and the deep learning works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You, you might have already referred to this then. So then there's the second section where you consider the arbitrary initialization. So global right. convergence with arbitrary initialization. Uh, and here's where you started introducing things like uh, quasi-convexity, strict saddle functions, and then this all local minima are global minima. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at the time, were these like kind of new ideas to start incorporating into the theory? I think, um, I guess it depends on a little bit on what's the definition of new mm -hmm. in terms of the strictly speaking, the, the properties, right? So quasi convexity, um, uh, strict saddle, um, and all local minima global. I don't think they are completely new, right? So like you can even imagine somebody could uh, propose some of this, you know, especially all local minima global, this sounds too intuitive, right? So so intuitive mm -hmm. so that you can imagine somebody else could propose it even 20 years ago, probably. I think actually that's, you know, technically true. Like in a paper in 1989, I think by um, uh, by Baldi and Hornick. So mm -hmm. they were actually analyzing two layer networks um, 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 without, uh, like linearized to their neural networks. And they are proving some results like this. They prove that two layer networks under certain conditions can have no bad local minimum, meaning all local minima are global. Mm -hmm. So so in terms of the notion, it's not that new. But I think in terms of like the um the 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 kind of like the the effort or kind of like the Right. The awareness uh, and also like of these kind of properties, and also in terms of the belief that realistic networks could possibly have these properties, mm -hmm. I think is somewhat uh, new at that time, right? So 
um, at that time, some one of the paper um, by uh, Young Lacun's group um, um, shows that you know possibly you can have no bad local minimum in even realistic uh, um, empirical neural network loss functions. Uh, and our paper's contribution, in my opinion, is that it shows that for theoretical, there is a hope to prove this kind of results theoretically, right? So we didn't prove this kind of results for um, uh, deep models, but we proved these results for matrix completion. So, so before our work, um, I think um, people maybe don't necessarily believe that this can be or at least people don't have the proof, the tools to prove these kind of results. And we show that you may be able to prove these results, at least for certain cases. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the new thing in it. Yeah, yeah. That's more what I was trying to get at. Like, out of all the, the, the space of different, like, strategies you could use to start analyzing this problem, it takes a lot to actually commit to one. Yeah. And maybe at the time, it, it, it even seemed crazy to, to say that, like, in these non-convex models, that we'd be able to show formally these different properties are holding. Yeah, yeah, I yeah I think yeah I agree. So in some sense, my paper and a, a, a few other papers around the same time, kind of like make the fields com commit to this strategy of no bad local minimum, like yeah strategy. Mm -hmm. So one distinction you made is between this algorithmic aspect uh, and the geometric aspect. So the geometric aspect, I guess, is this idea of looking at the loss landscape and then trying to show different properties about it. Again, this isn't like my research area, I'm not an expert in it, but I did some more reading on this uh, off the convex path blog. Yeah. Uh, and actually Sanjeev Aurora was discussing like another perspective, which is to analyze the trajectories. So is this kind of a shift that occurred that you shifted to the landscape view and now there's been another shift? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I think um, uh, there's a shift, but I think it's a little bit subtle in the sense that um, um, in some sense, the shift is not contradictory to the, to the previous view. Mm -hmm. So the reason is the following. So um, either, either before like a 2017 or 2016, I think people were thinking mostly about analyzing um, uh, the the landscape or the loss function uh, as, as given. So you give me a function uh, and I want to analyze whether this function is good or not, mm -hmm. right? Whether it has this nice property or not. And then I think as I, I, I allude to a little bit before, so if you, you can change the contract or change the interface a little bit. For example, you are a user. You don't necessarily have to give me a function. You can give me a research problem. You can give me a machine learning problem. Like you give me a data set, you say you want to predict classes for the images. And then I can design uh, the architecture first. I can say I'm going to use re residual networks or I can use over parameters, very, very big convolution networks. And then this is the decision I make. And then after I make the decision, I got a loss function because the loss function depends on the parameterization. Mm -hmm. And then I say, this loss function is great. Uh, we can optimize it. We can. Um, we can show that the, the loss function has the property that lo all local minima are global, right? So, so you, you can see that these new interfaces change the things in the sense that I have an additional knob to turn. Now I can change my architecture, mm -hmm. right? To change my loss function, right? So I don't have to commit to a loss function, I can change that. And this make it a little bit tricky because if I don't do things in the right way, for example, suppose I say I'm using a, 
like a, a million neurons to solve a one-dimensional problem. So optimization could become easier. Actually, that's a very interesting phenomenon uh, that was uh, kind of like discovered by a bunch of people in, in different papers. So if you use bigger and bigger networks, your optimization becomes easier. And now uh, the, the thing is that you cannot just only worry about optimization because if you only worry about optimization, then you get this somewhat mis misleading result because you say, okay, optimization is super easy because I can use a new big new network, I, I solve it, mm. right? Because now you have to also talk about generalization because uh, uh, at the end of the day, it's a machine learning problem, right? So if you use so many neurons, optimization becomes easier, but the, um, the generalization property um, becomes, you know, tricky or unknown, right? So, mm -hmm. and then, um, so, so now it becomes interesting. So, so empirically, people found that if you use bigger network, you don't have any generalization issue mm -hmm. in most of the cases, right? So, and theoretically, uh, if you use bigger networks, you may have, you know, overfitting just because of the classical learning theory says that if you have too many parameters, you're gonna overfit. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and then people realize that there is actually another thing in the uh, in the in the empirical deep learning algorithms that's that's going on, which we didn't know uh, at all before. Right. Mm -hmm. This is so-called implicit regularization. What does it mean is that when you optimize uh, this loss function, right, you are not just finding a global minimum, uh, an ar a arbitrary global minimum of this loss function. You may be finding actually a special type of local minimum. Mm -hmm. So or, or a special type of global minimum. So imagine that you have a very big network, you have uh, over parametrization, you can overfit. So because you have so many parameters, you can have a lot of different um, global minima in this loss function because there are so many different ways to fit your data, right? So all of these global minima, some of them will be uh, generalizing and some mm -hmm. of them will overfit. So somehow the algorithm prefers those that generalize, but not those that overfit. So the algorithm is doing something additional in beyond just finding a global minimum. It's finding a special global minimum. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples I often give in my talk is that imagine that you are, uh, you are going to a ski resort and, uh, and there are multiple parking lots in the ski resort. I say the ski resort is so big because you overparameter as your model, <laughs> right? So, and, uh, um, and you are trying to go downhill in your last trip, right? So it's not like you have to, you only have to find a parking lot mm -hmm. because uh, your car probably is only parked at one place, right? So you have to find the right parking lot. So the optimization algorithm is kind of like your ski routing process. Uh, it has to do two jobs simultaneously. One job is to find a global minimum and the other job is to find uh, the right global minimum. And that was Sanjeev's blog post was referring to. So you have to analyze the trajectory because if you only analyze the value, right? If, if you only say, I find uh, a point with very small value, right? I found a point that is, has very small value as, as small as a global minimum, then um, that particular point might not be the right global minimum you want to converge to. So mm -hmm. that's why you have to analyze the trajectory. So, um, so however, just to, you know, if you think about this, right? So like um, the trajectory view is in some sense on top of the landscape view mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, you first need to kind of be able to go to some global minimum, 
and then you talk about which global minimum you talk about you, you are going to converge to so so i tend to think of it as a uh, a very important addition to the landscape view but i don't think it's contradictory it, it almost seems that the ending point though is still all that matters like if you're able to characterize kind of what type of global minimum it is then does the way you get there the trajectory still matter right so if you can characterize where you eventually go uh-huh. you don't care about the trajectory but i think sanjeev's point which i kind of agree is that if you don't know the trajectory it's kind of hard to know where I you see. eventually will go to that makes so sense. um just because you know this is because you know if you like basically it's, it depends on what properties you know about the the endpoint right for example what i was saying is that if you only know the endpoint has a small function value that's not enough yeah 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 you have to know something more than that right so like uh, and one way to know something more than that is you know how you get to there exactly all the trajectory but that could be overkill as you pointed out you could know less uh, about uh, the entire trajectory, maybe you can only know a little bit about trajectory or you know some additional property of the endpoint. That could be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess, you know, there's also a technical um, technical issue with it, right? So like so far, it seems that it's probably better just to characterize the landscape, uh, sorry, characterize the trajectory uh, entirely and to know something more precise about the, the endpoint. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you find that like, that you've had to learn or become more familiar with new types of like different proof strategies, different mathematical ideas as these different shifts happen? Yes, I think that's definitely true. So um, um, before we are mostly using a potential function to analyze optimization. So uh, I guess we define this so-called Lyapunov function, which is one type of potential function. Potential function means you have a function that um, that is decreasing over time. And you just say, at each time I decrease this function, so eventually I know that this function decreases by uh, by so much, by, mm-hmm. by how much. Uh, and um, and this potential function kind of idea is limited in the sense that it only characterizes one particular property of the, of the trajectory, right? You just know that this trajectory satisfies that the potential function is, is, is this decreasing. Um, and if you want to analyze the trajectory, you have to know more about uh, the the iterate the the, the points uh, you are going through. So so these days, I think I'm also involved in some of these papers that try to characterize the trajectory. So one of the uh, my paper, and this is actually the code best paper in 2018. So we try to analyze the trajectory again for this relatively simple cases like two layer network or matrix completion kind of questions and there you have to characterize the, the the trajectory and and you have to talk about a lot of things for example what subspace that this trajectory lives in how the trajectory you know gradually rotate or change over time so it becomes much more complicated mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of why um, um, we don't have actually a very good understanding about uh, this so-called implicit regularization the the, the preferences of the algorithm just because the trajectory is too hard to analyze. Yeah, it's all really fascinating ideas. I really like this. The The blog post really gave access to some of these ideas like for people who haven't read all the details of the different papers. Yeah. 
maybe we can go to the to the other section on the linear dynamical systems. So here, one thing that I found interesting is that I think you started to look into this idea of over-parameterization. So here again, you weren't looking at deep learning yet, but it was on these dynamical systems, which kind of resemble the RNNs. Right. And then it seems like the key idea that you were investigating here had to do with this over-parameterization. Yeah, so the story is that, um, you are exactly right. The story is that I was at Google as an intern, I think in 2015 or 2016, I forgot. I think 20, 2015. And I talked to my mentor, Morris Hart and Van Rett. Van Rett. So I said that I want to analyze uh, recurrent networks. And then I got stuck for one month. I realized this is way too hard. So I say, okay, let's make it linear. So it's still recurrent, but there's no um, active nonlinear activations. So that becomes actual. I'll put a standard question like a le learning linear dynamical system. And interestingly, you know, this kind of algorithms, you know, could be used for learning linear dynamical system, but just nobody analyzed them because um, they seems to be hard because they are non-convex optimization. Uh, and uh, and in that work, I think interesting, we found that you know, if you don't overparameterize, you don't uh, uh, use bigger and bigger models, uh, you may got stuck at a bad local minimum. Mm -hmm. So this actually shows that you have to somewhat be open to changing uh, the loss function, right? So if you're only given a loss function as an optimizer, op optimization person, right? Maybe there's nothing you can do if the loss function is not good. But if you're given the whole machine learning question, you have more flexibility by changing the architecture. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this kind of over parameterization in the long run, kind of like um, motivate a lot of uh, new works on deep learning. So, for example, one um, um, like in the last two or three years, one of the um, uh, popular research ideas, so-called this neural tangent kernel idea. Mm -hmm. So people uh, look at that, and and uh, people look at this kind of very very wide networks. Uh, and for the very wide networks, you can have analysis that shows you can converge to a global minimum. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, that's a very successful kind of like um, progress in the last few years. Uh, however, of course, you know, now in 2021 or in 2020, people started to realize that um, this kind of like uh, analysis also has this drawback because when you use white networks, as I said, you have um, possibility to overfit. Uh, and interestingly, the the it's a minor detail that matters. So so if you use white networks and if you use initialization, if you use a um, a certain type of initialization, then you are in this so-called NTK analysis regime, mm. and then you can overfit. So basically, analysis is only for setting where you can overfit. However, if you use white white works, but you change your initialization scheme, or if you have some regularization, oh, either is fine. So if you do this small <laughs> checks or small changes to your algorithm, then uh, with the analysis, NTK analysis doesn't apply anymore. Mm. Um, and the empirical performance is much, much better. So basically that's the open regime that we never understand and uh, we, at least we haven't understand clearly. And also that's the regime where realistic deep learning optimization is operating in. Mm -hmm. so, so we still have a big open question optimization because we don't understand that interesting regime. I see, and, and it had to do with the argument that was made based on the way it used the initialization? Yeah, so ex 
Exactly. So, so the 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 argument has to depend on initialization, because if it don't, doesn't depend on initialization, you don't distinguish this, you don't distinguish this interesting regime and not interesting regime. So, um, so and there are many works that try to understand what initialization helps, right? So, um, I have a paper on that, and many other people have papers on that. Um, so far, most of the understanding can only work for very toy cases. So um, I have a few papers actually on different kind of like toy cases. You can be a little bit less and less toy <laughs> progressing gradually by right? having more and more complex complex models. Mm -hmm. um, and many other people have uh, this kind of like work. Um, but so far we don't have um, as, as good understanding uh, as, uh, as some of the other questions in deep learning. So, um, so, so there are still a lot of works too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask like about the overparameterization. So it seems like it's still an open question to say exactly why it helps, or like, do you have some loose intuitions for kind of why having so many parameters could be helping with generalization with the optimization? So I think the this is not necessarily even lose uh, 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 guess, it's probably kind of the conventional wisdom people believe in right now, but uh, but we don't know how to prove it. Mm. So we don't know how to prove it for, for the general cases. We can prove each piece of um, um, uh, small pieces of this theory for special cases. So the theory that people somewhat believe in is the following. So you first have to over-parameterize so that the landscape becomes kind of like flatter in some sense. Right, so if you don't overparameterize, there's just a unique local, local global minimum you are looking for, and you have so many kind of like if you have non-convexity, you have a lot of like um, uh, um, bad local minimum, kind of like the landscape could be very weird. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's why you have to overparameterize first, and then when you overparameterize, you are open to this um, uh, overfitting issue, mm -hmm. right? Because some of the uh, the global minimum could overfit, and some could not or may not overfit. And now you have to choose the right initialization and the right algorithm to somehow, uh, and maybe the right regularization to somehow find the uh, find a good global minimum. So I think I discussed this a little bit before. So uh, and but what what's exactly the mechanism to do that is unclear. Mm. So. Um, um, like, but we do believe that it's what the algorithm is doing, where right? the algorithm, the initialization, the, the maybe the regularization, or the learning rate, the, the batch size, everything in the algorithm, almost every um, details about the algorithm could influence which solution, which global minimum you converge to. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I give a talk, I used to have these slides uh, 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 with the title something like the hunt for uh, implicit regularizations, and you can see that people have discovered that almost everything about the algorithm has has a fact initialization. The batch size, you know, if you use large batch size, you may converge to a more overfitting solution. Mm -hmm. If you use small batch size, you converge to a better solution, and also dropout um, and what else? I guess um, the 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 architecture could also have a difference if you use non um like so-called batch normalization technique, then you may also um, um, have better, uh, you, can, you may also converge to a better uh, global minimum somehow. So um, we pretty much can say we don't understand um, any of this for non-linear models. 
So we understand them for um, linear models or maybe quadratic models, but not for like deep neural networks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So like looking back, like we mentioned, all of these different sections were about things like sparse coding, matrix completion, the linear dynamical systems. And it seems like as time goes on, at least currently, more and more is becoming just about deep learning. Yeah. And so like um, this came up in another interview uh, with Martha White. And the question was like, if we were designing a machine learning curriculum, what's kind of the justification for putting in these more classical methods? Intuitively, it seems like a good idea to, to still learn them. Uh, but do we kind of have to start making an argument for, for why, why we're learning them or? Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, uh, I can see that there's, um, um, like I teach machine learning at Stanford as well. I can, I also kind of like look at some of the other machine learning courses at other universities. I can see there's a shift towards deep learning for sure. Right. But, um, but if you really look at the machine learning courses at different universities, still a large portion of the course is about uh, the so-called classical, uh, the, the more classical uh, ideas. Right. And I think there's a good reason for that. I kind of support that as well. So um, the reason is that um, the, the, the basic deep learning doesn't require any like classical work, right? So you have to define the right works. You have to define a loss function. If you know the gradient descent, you can basically start to run a deep learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. That's true. So, so if you only care about those, sure, we probably don't have to teach kernel machines. We don't necessarily have to teach, for example, graphical models, right? So, um, however, uh, when you are doing some more advanced deep learning, some of these kind of like uh, classical ideas start to come into play. Not, not like uh, in the in the in the architecture in the in the in the in the in the neural network part, but in some other part. Mm -hmm. For example, if you do. Um, uh, gen like image generations, right? So there's one of these algorithm algorithm called variational autoencoder. This this does requires knowledge about the variational inference, which is uh, actually a pretty advanced uh, topic in machine learning. Mm -hmm. So in, before deep learning. So and 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 may, there are many other uh, ideas that are pretty relevant. Um, um, so 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 I think and also some of this um, some of the tools like used in deep learning also is kind of like, um, it's actually reuse, you are basically reusing the same tools in a different way. So that's why I do believe that we should teach the classical machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, my philosophy, I, I don't necessarily think this is the best way, but I my way to do it is that I try to uh, keep those uh, classical uh, machine learning uh, algorithms that are relevant and I remove some of them that are not at least that's are not directly relevant. So so basically, in uh, at Stanford we have this course CS two twenty nine, which was uh, developed by Andrew In, and uh, I'm building on top of it a little bit. And right right now, what we have is that we have like at least half of the lectures are still classical things, but mm -hmm. these are things that are necessary for deep learning. For example, like um 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 like the basic things like linear regression logistic regressions and the kernel uh kernel method you know you need kernel method to think about you know representations and you know when people do 
like you think about features so and so forth, right? So, and also we teach expectation maximization, the EM algorithm, which is necessary for you to do variational autoencoders. Mm -hmm. And also we teach some of the reinforcement algorithms. So, um, yeah, I guess that's basically my 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 thinking. Like we need to still teach the classical ones just for the technical, at least for the technical part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and for the record, I, I agree. Uh, I just asked, it, it's always good to hear like people articulate the the argument. Uh, there's some people listening probably that are wondering about that question. So yeah, it's good to hear. I, I think one of the, one of the thing is that sometimes, you know, like uh, we also have to think about the students kind of like uh, um, reception and and the audience, right? So, mm -hmm. like, uh, uh, I can definitely understand that you know if somebody wants to learn machine learning, you don't want to first take an entire course on all the history of machine learning and all the details, and then you start to do deep learning, right? So that seems to be, you know, even that's the optimal strategy. It still sounds then sounds super attractive to the students, right? So then the students may lose interest, or the students may feel like this is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So so. So it sounds to me that what we need to do as instructors is somehow like synergistically and, and cleverly mix deep learning with the classical ones so that you know people don't lose the interest, people see why the classical ones are useful, and then they have more motivations to learn the classical <laughs> tools. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, yeah, maybe we can go to this section on the, um, so it was called interpreting non-convex objective functions. Uh, and so here you were looking at these word embeddings. To me, it seems like kind of a different flavor than the other sections. Um, so yeah, how did you kind of get interested in analyzing, uh, like looking into these word embedding methods? Yeah, so I think, you know, um, uh, like uh, my motivation, you know, partly becomes because, just because like we found that this is an interesting question. Word embedding was very popular these those days, and we don't have any ways to understand why they can work mm. at that point. Um, but in retrospect, I think you know this is also a shift. Um, like it's not like a maybe not sequential, but like a parallel kind of like shift towards more uh, modeling questions. Uh, in my PhD, so um, so I think as a machine learning theoretician, sometimes you think about. Uh, you are given a, a, a fixed machine learning problem and you want to solve it, you want to analyze and, and, and with theory. Um, but sometimes also one has to um, formulate the question in the right way. So um, this is not only a job for the practitioners or the applied machine learners or the machine learning uh, um, um, developers. So it's also a, a job of the machine learning theorists just because some of these questions, right, you have to formulate in a way so that you can analyze <laughs> uh, analyze it. Right? So the formulation that the practitioners do could be very useful for their purpose, but they may not be necessarily exactly the right thing for your theoretical analysis. Mm -hmm. so, so, so basically a, a, a good portion of my work, maybe like a third of my work does involve some novel formulation perspective. Um, uh, um, so and this uh, NLP work on word embeddings on um, party are, are like that. So so we have to start formulating a question like how do you model the language, uh, and how do you model the uh, the relationship between words in the language, and then after you have set up the the model, you have to do some proof to say that you know if the language is generated um, by this 
I think we use this hidden Markov model. Suppose the language is indeed generated like this, then um, uh, then you can run this word embedding algorithms to produce meaningful word embeddings. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's the, the flavor. And also there, we don't care that much about optimization. We care more about defining the right loss function for the optimization right so like actually we don't have analysis for what for whether the the optimization can provably find the best solution we just assume that the optimization is almighty and our focus was why the loss function you are optimizing is the right loss function mm -hmm. so so i guess you know it's under the same thesis partly because the thesis is not only about optimization it's also about it's it's more about convexity i guess sorry non-convexity the non-convexity is what links to links all of these things. So, um, so in this NLP work, we have to um, deal with non-convexity and non-linearity, even when we talk about the optimization, because when you have non-linearity, a lot of math just stops work, stops working. Mm -hmm. So you have to have be novel about what kind of math techniques you can use. And yeah, I really liked, it gave this kind of unified view of these different methods. So there was the point-wise mutual information, the word to vec and glove, and it kind of encompassed them all in, in terms of this one model, which is cool. Do you, do you think that in general, like NLP seems like a fruitful domain for theory? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So I also have some recent works on analyzing um, the large uh, language model methods for NLP. Um, so I... I think it's a very important direction and it could be fruitful because it's underexplored. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, we also have the challenges like we have all the existing challenges for vision <laughs> or for the standard setting, right, uh, as well. So uh, you don't know how to optimize the, the loss functions. We don't exactly understand why over-parametrization can work. Um, so, so I think one of the important thing here is that we need to somewhat um, like abstract away some of those challenges um, and, and then focus on the new challenges that is special to NLP, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't want to say that I have to understand supervised learning for vision. I have to understand standard supervised learning. Then I start to understand NLP, right? That seems to be, that's okay, but that seems to be too late, right? So, so in some sense, if there's a way that can say, I assume I understand the supervised learning to some extent, mm -hmm. right? Uh, even though this is a this is this assumption is now true because we still have a lot of open questions about supervised learning, right? But suppose I assume I understand them in some in some sense, and and this assumption is somewhat kind of like what people believe but couldn't prove, um, and then a condition on that you focus on the new challenges in NLP. Uh, I think that would be a very nice set of setup for the moment um, because otherwise it's very hard to make progress. So why do you think it was like so much of the theory was traditionally on vision? Is it just because there's kind of a simple supervised learning setup? Yeah, like what actually does make, uh, what is unique about the NLP setting from a theory perspective? I guess there are a few things. So one thing is that for NLP, you have discrete data. Uh, like and also sequential data, so um, and and you have to use the property of the sequential data. Like uh, you cannot just ignore the se sequence; you just uh, view them as 
for example, bag of words, or you can view, you cannot just view them as a very long uh, sequence of um, a very long high dimensional vector. Mm-hmm. I think you have to use the sequence, and that creates some complication. And another thing is that for NLP, especially these days, the, the NLP algorithms um, are kind of like this um, uh, use these pre-training ideas very heavily. Mm-hmm. So so when you talk about NLP, you never talk about using uh, a standard supervised learning to predict some uh, task, for example, sentence similarity, and your input is just sentences. What you do is that you first train a gigantic language model, which doesn't predict anything about similarity. It only predicts the the next token probability. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the language model is doing. And then you have this gigantic language model. You fine tune it on the downstream tasks like um, sentence similarity, and then um, this creates this two phase. Uh-huh, algorithm, um, and that becomes much harder to analyze. Right, yeah, yeah. And also you have, for example, domain shift, like the two phase also are not trained on the same data even, right? So that also creates more complications. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this definitely isn't precise or rigorous, but just reading through, reading through the section on the course initialization actually got me thinking about this transfer learning setup. Like, is the initial pre-training giving some really good initialization for the model. Uh, and then like, can you actually formalize that? Like maybe it's within a certain distance or it defines some landscape that's more favorable for the downstream tasks. Yeah, you are exactly right. Um, but I guess, you know, uh, on the other hand, there, the tricky, the hard part is that you are, you, you are given a very good initial model from the language model, right? But good in what sense? Mm-hmm. It's not good in the sense of you can predict a downstream task up to 90% and then you have to fine-tune it to be 100%. It's only good in the sense that it can predict the next word to- probability token very well. Right. right. So there's also a change of tasks, which makes um, makes it difficult. But but you are right on the high level, of course. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I had like a kind of like a crazy question that I was kind of curious about, though. In terms of like state-of-the-art, so... You know, part of the research community, or you know, if someone's really working on a certain problem, um, at least in like the cartoon version of it, you know, they might be refreshing archive and checking what is the current state of the art. I was wondering, like, when you're working in theory, what kind of when does state of the art matter? Is it really when like a fundamentally new technique comes out and it happens to get like better performance on standard benchmarks? So yeah, like to you, when does state of the art beating state of the art matter? I think uh, for me, the state of the art matters when, uh, when kind of like it matters for the practitioners in some sense. Uh, so uh, the reason is basically that you know, um, if it matters for the for the practitioners, we kind of like believe that this is probably they ha- the the practitioners have a way to. Kind of assess whether uh, this is a generally a new method or not mm-hmm. and if i were to kind of assess whether this is a uh whether this is a matters i guess there are several things you know it's, it's always kind of like a, uh, a subjective judgment but i think one thing could be that how much you beat the previous state of art right so if you only beat for one percent you know uh, depending on which task maybe if the task is c far um you improve from 98 to 99, maybe that's something very interesting. But if the task is like uh, some random task, maybe we don't know, not, not 
enough people explore it, maybe that's not um, that interesting. And if the task is image night, maybe 1% is already big enough because it's already pretty high and, uh, and people have tried a lot. So, mm -hmm. um, and um, another thing is that how does the method uh, work, right? So, so if the method is very close to the previous method, but just to tweak uh, some small parts of it, and it gets a small, relatively small improvement, maybe mm -hmm. that's not that impressive. Um, but if actually you are close, suppose you are close to a previous method, but you just change something small and it, it makes a big improvement, maybe that's actually impressive because, you know, that suggests that this single small changes is what matters. So, um, yeah, so I guess <laughs> I don't have a, a, <laughs> uh, a systematic way to, to assess whether a state of art is meaningful or not. Um, but it's a combination of different factors, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah, an example that came to mind was the ResNet. Uh, like I was looking through some of your work and I, I don't remember the exact takeaway, but I think you showed like some properties that held for the ResNet, but maybe not for other architectures. And that to me felt like it's not only beating the metrics, but there's actually something deep, like deeper going on. Right, right. So, um, yeah, and 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 as a... I, um, as a matter of fact, I think ResNet is still pretty, very, very popular these days, right? So, um, mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, to be fair, our paper was published after ResNet. Uh, like we, we, we read ResNet's uh, result and, and we found that it's very impressive and all of our friends and colleagues found that it's, it's a big breakthrough. And we started to think about whether um, those paper, uh, whether we can explain why the techniques is more, um, 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 suitable uh, for for generalization, for optimization, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, to be honest, I guess the ideal goal of theory should be that you can propose something that um, uh, some new things with theoretical justification and also with practical uh, implications. Um, I think there are not many papers that can achieve this. You know, some of the papers can do that, like including some of my papers, we can propose a new method and get better empirical performance. But generally theory papers do uh, relatively um, um, kind of in some sense catching, <laughs> catching from behind uh, and mostly trying to explain exist existing uh, techniques. We'd obviously need like several hours to go over all of the work you've done, but Maybe if you just wanted to highlight any um, like key areas that you've maybe branched off from your PhD research or just any areas that you want to mention uh, that you're working on now. Yeah, so I guess uh, um, after PhD, I think one of the things we branch out is this implicit regularization stuff, which is um, still kind of like within the realm of deep learning theory, but it's a new phenomenon we want to explain. Uh, and then recently in the last two years, uh, I'm still doing the, the optimization generalization thing, but I'm uh, trying to work on this new direction where we try to understand unsupervised learning, deep learning methods or representation learning. Um, so, so where you don't have label data or you have very few label data and you want to learn representations that are robust to downstream uh, uh, domain shift or uh, that can be used to uh, um, predict labels for downstream tasks, which could possibly be from a different domain. So we had uh, a few papers along this line. So, so we had a paper, we had actually a few papers on the so-called self-training algorithms, which 
is a way to use unlabeled data. So the idea is that you first use some labeled data to learn a classifier, but this classifier is not great. It's okay. Let's say 70% accuracy, let's say. And then you use this classifier to do to predict on the unlabeled data. So and you get some so-called pseudo label because these labels are not real. They could be wrong, right? Because you are using your classifier to predict the labels. Uh, however, you still tune with the pseudo labels. You get these labels that you predict yourself and you tune with them again and you iterate. So uh, somewhat magically, you can even tune with your own label uh, and, and bootstrap from it and get higher and higher accuracy. And this is the key idea among uh, a bunch of empirical breakthroughs, um, like a, um, like a, actually you know, a, quite a, a few different settings, for example, semi-supervised learning, domain adaptation. So they use similar ideas. And we had a paper that, we had a few papers that tried to explain this you know, with more and more complex models. And, and we had, a, and eventually we can explain also uh, some of these phenomenons for uh, deep models. And along the same line, uh, we also uh, uh, analyzed this uh, contrastive learning algorithms, which is an algorithm for representation learning. So um, this is, again, uh, some empirical breakthroughs in the last, um, well, two years, I guess two years. So people use um, uh, unlabeled data to learn representations first, and then they, re they found that these representations can be equally good um, uh, as the supervised learning methods. So, but here you don't have any labels. So we want to understand why this can work. So generally these are, these are a line of work that tries to understand what happens when you uh, have unlabeled data because unlabeled data is very important and uh, it's, it's kind of like a much easier to, to obtain uh, in real life. So it's very important to use them to get better performance. So we want to understand why theory like a, we want to kind of understand some of the why some of the methods can work in theory and also hopefully propose new methods. Some of the works uh, that I mentioned does um, do have some new methods which can improve the performance a little bit. I also noticed that like reinforcement learning is another general area that you're going to now. Yeah, so reinforcement learning is another area. So I guess um, in the last... Uh, few years, I've been doing more work on empirical reinforcement learning um, because I realized that uh, in the deep reinforcement learning, there are a lot of um, new algorithms or maybe I should say a lot of new kind of like um, things that are very different from tabular cases. So I was hoping to understand what an important question, what are the uh, empirical behaviors of these algorithms uh, for uh, with deep learning so and uh, that's what i've been doing in the last three or four years uh, so we had a bunch of paper um, that can improve the empirical SOTA uh, in various settings uh, and then mm -hmm. uh, in the last well two years i started to work more on the theory because i feel like okay we have understand some of the empirical stuff um, better so that i know how to phrase the question uh, in the theoretical setup um, and we also have some new tools to analyze that. But this is just the area that we started to work on. The deep, learning, deep reinforcement theories area is just something we started to work on. And I think there are going to be a lot of new works uh, in the future. Um, but if we have, if we find the right tools. Okay, well, um, yeah, so there's two questions that I always end the thesis for you with. Uh, so the first has to do with objective functions, uh, which we've been talking about. Um, I guess I have to think of a question that incorporates 
generalization because like just the loss function value itself uh, isn't enough. But anyways, uh, if you could look back at when you were a PhD student, um, would you say that there was some objective function guiding your behavior? Like, was it really understanding one area in depth? Was it kind of scientific exploration or, you know, career prospects? Uh, and then would you say that now your objective function has changed or stayed the same? Yeah, I think um, at the beginning of the PhD, my objective was just that I need to find the area that are interesting and mm-hmm. promising uh, so that I can work on for five years. Um, I think that took probably two years to figure out. Like I had you know, a few papers along this line of non-convex optimization in the first two years. And I thought that this is a good area. And then after that, my main objective was just uh, that we need to develop tools to understand deep learning non-convex optimization um, gradually from easier case to harder cases um, mm-hmm. and and also learn more tools. So after being a professor, um, I guess things become a little bit different. I guess now I have to think about, you know, the objective is not only my only my career, but also like I need to help the students to uh, find out their interesting directions. So as a result, I think I work on more diverse kind of like uh, questions. Um, but I guess the meta objective is always the same. It's just like you want to find out what are the interesting uh, um, research questions and and the, the that is most impactful. Um, and I try to make progress <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in those directions. And then the last question is, um, if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it could be some grand advice, or it could just be a useful heuristic, uh, or one of each, uh, one piece of advice for a new researcher. Yeah, I think um, it's probably a little bit hard to find a one, like a like a universal advice. But I think this might come close to that. So I think. Um, I found that one useful thing for me is that I tend to focus on things, right? So when I'm doing theory, I try to focus on on the the, the theoretical tools and um, and I try to dive into it. And when I do experimental stuff, I also try to be like a, a focused and and kind of like really know every details about my experiments, every details about any line of my code. So I think focusing on the details generally helps. Of course, it takes a lot of time, um, especially at the beginning. You, for example, if you start to be a machine learning theorist and, um, and for example, if you have to read so many papers with so many pages, and uh, that could take a lot of time and effort. Um, but eventually this pay off, right? So in the long run, um, and, and I, I, I do see that some of the students don't invest, in ta- invest the time in the early stage of their PhD and then later on they found out that they have to kind of catch up uh, with some of the foundations and details um, and they don't have enough time to do that because they are being more and more productive and they have more and more projects uh, in their third year or fourth year right so they don't have enough time to kind of catch up with the foundations so I think that's my general advice, it doesn't necessarily apply to everyone because, you know, it depends also on the area. So for some areas, you have to first, you know, 
get something done first, right? And then like, because if you keep doing like the detail, looking at the details, sometimes you lose interest, right? So you found that okay, you are just uh, reading all of these papers, then that's probably also not good. But it's a kind of a balance, right? So um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to feel like more students uh, like uh, could use more work on the foundations than, um, than the other way around. Yeah, so focus on the on the foundations. Don't be afraid to take a bit of time, especially up front, to, to do so, because it'll pay off. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, th thanks so much for taking all the time to uh, <laughs> to come on this silly podcast. It was it was really fun reading through this. I think like doing this podcast, it's given me an excuse to like s slowly start understanding the different parts of theory. So like we had Simon Dew on, uh, and now had you on, which is very related. And um, yeah, it's it's really interesting getting to discuss these different ideas. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for the interview. This is uh, also a very interesting experience for me when I'm looking at the last five to 10 years, what I've done and what the research community has developed um, and, and like uh, reflect on some of the, <laughs> the research we have done. It's kind of uh, very interesting and insightful. Thanks. Thanks.